just start again. I'm just <laughs> blanking out. Even it's evening for it's me. Evening for everybody. That's right. <laughs> okay. Uh, hello, hello everyone, and welcome to this podcast channel. Uh, for this particular podcast, I have with us Dr. Matthew Langren, who is uh, the associate professor at Stanford University and also a co-director of the Stanford Center for Artificial Intelligence in Medical Imaging. And he has a very strong background in medical uh, applications or and use of AI for particular medical applications. And he's also uh, he has a very strong undergrad background from Arizona State University. So definitely uh, go devils over there. <laughs> so, um, but I'll let him introduce himself. And but I'll, I'll like to welcome you to the podcast. And thanks for being here. Yeah, thank you for having me. You know, this is great. Um... Yeah, in terms of my background, you're right. I I did. I actually grew up in the Phoenix area. Went to Arizona State as an undergraduate. Um, uh, I actually pursued an English degree uh, at Arizona State, in addition to a biology degree, and then went off to medical school uh, at University of Michigan in Ann Arbor, and then to Duke for my uh, residency training in imaging uh, and image guided interventions. And then um, you know now I'm a faculty here at Stanford, um, and you know my time is. Uh, you know, sort of split between my clinical duties, which is, you know, about half of my time. I'm seeing patients performing procedures, uh, reading imaging studies. And then the other uh, half of my time, I'm co-director of the center, as you mentioned, which is a sort of a, a Stanford-wide initiative that now has more than 110 faculty uh, across different departments and schools related to clinical machine learning. Uh, and then, you know, whatever time I have left, I run a, a research lab just uh, on my own research work with uh, with students and postdocs and uh, and PhD students. So it's a it's a busy life, but it's great. Uh, Stanford's an awesome environment for particularly this kind of work right now, and uh, it's just really nice to have a mix of you know traditional kind of clinical practice and uh, also kind of trying to explore what's possible with uh, with these new technologies. Wow, that that sounds really awesome. Yeah, definitely. And um, talking more about uh, machine learning and machine learning application to medical imaging, it's it's a very broad topic in, in, in itself. And we have seen a lot of breakthroughs in the very recent times. But to talk to more in detail, like what are your current focus and what specific area of medical imaging you try to apply machine learning to? And what are your current projects? If you um, if you feel like talking about it, like what, how are you using machine learning right now? Yeah, you know, it's, it's interesting. I, um, you know, for, we, we actually uh, have applications from, you know, development sort of, you know, kind of uh, futuristic, you know, new ideas all the way to relatively straightforward clinical trials and translation, right? So it really spans the gambit. Um, I, um, I kind of started out with just, you know, sort of very early on, uh, you know, what the what's possible kind of stuff, right? Just, you know, sort of seeing what we can do with some of these tools and, you know, was consistently impressed with, you know, kind of the performance of, of, of some of the early work that we did, mainly with, you know, two-dimensional uh, imaging, like chest x-rays and things that are very common. Uh, it's actually the most common imaging exam in the world, right? Um, and sort of thinking about you know, low-hanging fruit, large population sort of use, use cases for that. And then kind of branched into, again, more advanced imaging modalities, uh, CT and MR and other things. I think along the lines of, you know, directions, you know, we've we really try to take, uh, you know, very uh, multidisciplinary teams. So domain experts in the clinical side and certainly uh, domain experts in the computer science side and, and try to team them up. Uh, and, and really that's been a kind of a secret sauce for a lot of the success that we've had. Um, and so, you know, kind of, you can almost name any area of medical imaging and we there's a chance that we have a project or have done work in that area. But, 
it's not just about, you know, us, so to speak, right? We're not just trying to uh, promote just the work that we're doing. We really try to take the things that we're learning and open it up to the, the broader community. And that's really been a, a core belief, a core mission of ours. And so in other words, you know, we've, we've really put an emphasis on leading the space of making more AI ready data, data sets uh, in medical imaging available to researchers all over the world. We recognize that, you know, even with infinite time, we'll never come up with the kinds of ideas that, you know, a kind of a crowdsourced, you know, scaled uh, community like the, the computer science community can. And, you know, we learn from, the, you know, the experiences uh, of ImageNet, right? Fei Fei Li's groundbreaking work really did propel deep learning into the space that we're kind of all currently enjoying, right? And, and understanding what's possible. And uh, I think having large amounts of labeled AI-ready data, data sets available, it really helps us all investigate and really, you know, broadens engagement into the medical imaging space, which is which helps everybody, right? We learn just as much from other groups working on the data sets that we've, you know, sort of developed and put out there than practically we've learned on our own, right? And so that's really great, I think, and it's really helped, I think, elevate the visibility of this field. Um, you know, as we look towards the future, what I what I really pride myself on, at least personally, is that, you know, I really try to get in the weeds um, and learn as much as I can. I don't have a strong uh, technical background. I'm not an engineer. I'm not a computer scientist. But, you know, I've, again, spent a lot of time asking the right questions, learning from my students, learning from, uh, you know, some of the, the computer science professors here. And, and in that process, uh, the, the folks that I work with also are learning about medicine, right? That's a even potentially more difficult thing to learn about. There aren't a lot of online courses, right, for, for that kind of knowledge. And so when we put together these teams, I think there's a lot of cross-disciplinary learning. And, and so as I see sort of the future uh, or just as our projects kind of roll out, uh, different pieces of that domain expertise become more uh, important depending on where you are in that cycle. And so, um, again, whether it's development of a, of a cool idea or whether it's trying to design a clinical trial, you can't do it alone. You need to have a variety of domain experts, and that's kind of how we've focused our work. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. And uh, to try to probe you more on the background, as you mentioned, you don't have a very technical background into the computer science aspect, but you still uh, are one of the leading people that I, I, I personally, because most of my work around revolves around my medical imaging too. And I know uh, I have uh, come through uh, across a lot of works within your students or lab or in general, uh, your vicinity of people. But how did, what was, can you, can you recall the time that you first stumbled or babbled around um, uh, machine learning and you thought that machine learning has a very uh, crucial impact into medical imaging because I'm, I'm sure m maybe prior to 2012 not a lot of focus would have been on to uh, using machine learning for medical imaging. It would have been a pure medical research community. So can you recall and share with us like what was the first time you understood that hey ma uh, you know machine learning could be something really useful for uh, pure medical research too? Yeah, no, absolutely. And, you know, so I, I actually, you know, it's funny, there's folks that come at this from like data science, some people come at it from biostatistics, some come from engineering, pure computer science, there's a lot of different avenues to get into this area. You know, for me, my journey was obviously non-traditional uh, in a lot of ways. I, I have an MPH, which is sort of uh, really focused my attention on sort of large, uh, you know, public health uh, sort of related projects. And for me, that required, you know, again, this is in the 20. 12, 2013 range, you know, to do that work, you need to acquire a lot of data. Um, and, you know, with the kinds of work that we were working on, uh, that it required a lot of manual annotation, right, and curation and data wrangling. And, 
you know, those are skill sets that are underappreciated. But for any project, you can ask anyone, no matter how much work they're doing, you know, a good 80% right is the common thing they say is literally just sorting out the data, right, before you could even get to machine learning. And so some of those skill sets I had acquired just from doing projects at sort of a population level. But really, when I came to Stanford, you know, again, I hadn't been exposed to, to anything related to machine learning, but um, I had been looking for um, an avenue to do uh, NLP uh, because a lot of, uh, you know, what we were working on were large uh, data sets of radiology images and the reports. And if you know much about medical imaging, which sounds like you do, you know, our, we don't have structured labels, right, for what's on the image, right? If they're actually, it's a free narrative text. And that poses lots of problems to scale and curate and, you know, structure data sets. And so I was, you know, previous to that, I had done it manually, uh, which is obviously not ideal. Um, and then sort of getting to know some of the resources here, reaching out and, you know, again, we're, we're really fortunate here at Stanford. My office is uh, in the medical school. I'm literally uh, like four blocks from the Gates building, right? So it takes me 15 <laughs> minutes to walk uh, over to the, you know, where it all started. A lot of the big computer science uh, luminaries, you know, sort of got their education. So I was able to kind of interact with that community really early on, say, hey, I've got this really big data set. I'm really working on this automation and then, you know, I just started to become real curious. I mean, I, you know, I, I really felt like you know, a light bulb clicked on for me. The more I learned about it, the more potential I saw. Uh, and again, I'm not alone. I think a lot of people uh, felt the same way. And it just, it just happened that we had the right combination of, uh, you know, I had been really experienced with gathering large data sets, trying to draw conclusions already from a population level, and then sort of saying, now we can automate this in all kinds of different ways, including on the pixel data, including on the text data. But if you look at some of my early work, I mean, it's it's more traditional support vector machines, right? Um, LSTMs, us, you know, just trying to look at just the text reports before I really moved into the pixel work. And um, I think that foundation actually helped me a lot because I, you know, in in that's a in my opinion much more difficult conceptually to grasp a lot of the word embeddings and trying to you know really wrap my head around how this stuff really works. Uh, and it allowed me sort of to continue to evolve. And listen, I, I spend, you know, up to an hour and a half a day just dedicated to trying to read, trying to understand, uh, asking a lot of questions on on Slack and email with with my colleagues. And over time, I've kind of gotten a casual education in this. And um, I, I think that from the from the perspective of my background, you know, I look at this and say uh, a lot of clinicians are coming to me and saying, hey, how do I get started? I don't know how to code. I don't know. Uh, I don't have, you know, a strong mathematical background or something like that. And I, and I, I sort of, uh, you know, sort of say, you know, there's a lot of analogies to, to how I've built my career to how, uh, you know, we've been training imagers. So, you know, any radiologist is an absolute expert in imaging. They know when to use the imaging tools. They know how to use them. They know when they work, when they don't work, the principles. But most radiologists, 99.9% .9 of them have no idea how to build an MRI machine or, you know, build a CT scanner from scratch. That's not part of the work that we do, but we understand the principles, even the physical principles behind the work. It's very similar to, to, to me that what we do here, which is to say, you know, I can, uh, you know, sort of put together a conceptual roadmap. I can think about, you know, new computer science innovation that's happening in, you know, autonomous driving or other areas of computer vision. I can bring that back from my understanding of the principles and my own domain expertise to plan out how I might leverage that, you know, sort of innovation in the medical space. And, and so, and that, again, that doesn't require me to, to sit down with you and write out the proofs, 
of, of you know the loss function, but I can at least sit there and tell you what I think we need to do to get there. And um, and that's really I guess my my journey. And so as part of that, you know, we've said, hey, um, if I can do it, anybody should be able to do this. So we really tried to. I worked with um, another computer scientist faculty, Serena Young, to put together a course uh, really focused on folks that don't have a technical background, aren't planning on coding, but do want to lead these projects, do want to understand more about it. Um, we built a curriculum initially here, and then we ended up releasing it on Coursera. And, you know, for us, that really was kind of the, the, the least you need to know to get off the ground. And, and we hope that that's going to be sort of the, the night is for other people to say, hey, this is super cool. I, I'm starting to get it. And then they get passionate about it. Um, but my journey was certainly casual, but I've tried to, I don't know, build on my learnings and maybe make it more available to others as well. Yeah, definitely. Uh, yeah, definitely. I know about that course. So I'll definitely put a link to this particular course in the description. But uh, yeah, it sounds really great. And it's it's definitely a very nice way that you caught up onto machine learning is like you started, you didn't directly jump into deep learning because a lot of people who are not from computer science domain, but still work with machine learning, when they jump to deep learning dip, uh, dip, uh, directly, they like the concepts are much more weaker in general they don't understand what are the consequences of using machine learning in a very bad sense and in that case you have a very uh, you have a very uh, long but still a very uh, concrete journey into machine learning but uh, yeah you you definitely did mention about something about uh, self driving and all those things so if we take a step back and just eliminate right now just medical imaging and if we see application of deep learnings in other applications for example like you said self you know, self driving or uh, stock market prices and all those uh, domains we see a common thread that says that deep learning is majorly used for um, automating stuff and eliminating human errors. So as a medical professional, my question would be, how do you see uh, machine learning playing a role to contributing to pure medical research? Is it something as innovative as say biomarker discovery? I have seen few papers where deep learning is like doing some marvelous stuff that even uh, medical professionals were uh, kind of shocked or wondered at. Or is it something just like for confirming your hypothesis, like you would hypothesize that, okay, the, this would be the thing and you you run it across all the data sets and you are just confirming your hypothesis. Or is it just as simple as just a tool to manage your data or like, like you said, uh, initial days, like sorting the data and making clean data sets. So where do you see um, machine learning fitting into the space of uh, medical imaging right now, or maybe in the next, let's say, next five years? Yeah, no, that's a great question. And, you know, I think every use case you brought up, you know, from, you know, discovery, right? So looking at data in a new way to try to draw new insights based on maybe a clinical outcome or, you know, you mentioned the drug use case. So how can we, you know, sift through, you know, basically inhuman amounts of information to really uh, sort it out and, and you know narrow down on certain you know candidates that would be that would be you know useful uh, to kind of you know inform our next steps for trials and things like that. Um, but you know also to just how do we gain new insights into the pixel data that we already have? How do we combine two different types of data sets, sometimes three, right? Different um, modalities, bringing them together, um, and then you know. For, but for me, I think as as I look at the the roadmap for you know this work in medical imaging, I think the initial, um, you know, the, the initial models that we're seeing kind of deployed already um, that are most likely going to gain traction for a long period of time are really just around the image reconstruction. So, you know, that's kind of a, you know, already kind of a machine learning-ish 
uh, thing. You know, we do iterative reconstruction. Uh, you know, filter back projection. These are these are mathematical sort of uh, you know very much a, a standardized way of doing things. From you know, again, if you're familiar with medical imaging, you know, you're kind of pulling things out of Fournier transforms or K-space, and you're creating an image that we can actually see and, and recognize as humans and interpret. Um, there's a lot of work saying we can shorten uh, some of those traditional kind of computer programming right approaches and, and use deep learning to to make it more efficient or faster. Uh, and I think that you know those things are already kind of baked into our next year or two or three years down the road. And and so that's the image creation side, which again is much more of a almost a, a physics related or mechanical part of of where this can have a lot of applications. And then then you sort of go now into the clinical space and you say. How can I either take uh, radiology, the work that we do, right, and sort of looking at different imaging studies, and how do I make that more efficient or quicker or more accurate, as you pointed out? And I think finding use cases where, you know, there are um, there's enough clinical benefit to 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 be worth the effort in implementing into the system, and frankly, dealing with the potential repercussions of this automated component within a relatively chaotic. Uh, environment that has very high stakes, right? This is this is certainly not um, you know cat and dog photos. There's some major things on the line, and so we have to be very cautious about where we put these things. So we can develop you know hundreds of of models that can do all kinds of different things, but then then there's this step of do we take that you know take that leap and and go through the work of clinical trials, actually having it impact patients in a real way, and those decisions actually require a lot more. Uh, thought around, you know, again, the use case, the the medical environment, the stakeholders, the patients themselves. And, and so those aren't quite the same as, you know, some of the other, uh, again, the reconstruction kind of uh, use cases and things like that. But, you know, even, even if you took a step further and said, well, you know, how about we can use some of these models to do population level health, which again, is something I'm interested in. Now you're saying, you know, maybe this isn't part of the normal work that radiologists do, but maybe I can sort of take a large healthcare system and, and design a model that can identify patients who otherwise maybe wouldn't have been identified that are at risk for stroke or at risk for uh, heart disease or early cancer detection. And can I, can I use that to sort of find ways to funnel them into, into healthcare workflows that already exist and actually have better outcomes from that perspective? So it's not all about just how can I make a radiologist faster? There's you know, there's, it's a multifaceted sort of um, series of options that we have. And, and again, we try to take the ones that are, uh, you know, obviously very robust, very well tested, but then uh, do they provide what we call the utility is really what we end up, this is all a utility judgment. What are we getting out of it? What's the risk that we're putting into it? And do those things line up in a way that makes sense for our patients? Hmm. Right, that that makes sense, and that, like this wasn't a pl pl uh, part of my question list, but this brings me to a question: is uh, how do you decide between, for example, given a uh, uh, given any kind of medical research you are doing for which you have data, how do you go on deciding is this a pure medical research problem or versus? something that I should be using a statistical machine learning tool versus should I be using a deep learning tool? What are the factors that in the past or in current you have considered that, hey, this is this is not something machine learning can do, like this is just something we as medical professionals should be able to solve uh, versus uh, relying on machine learning? Well, yeah, I mean, you bring up a good point. I mean, I, you know, you see a lot, listen, there's a, everyone 
who's in healthcare, who knows anything about, you know, deep learning or machine learning at all, or have heard some things about it has an idea, right? They're like, Hey, I think I can do this. Right. And so, um, you know, we spend a lot of time actually as a center, um, sort of, we actually even have a program called the office hours program where it's open call. Anybody who's affiliated with our center can schedule time to sit down with a computer scientist or domain expert, depending on their needs and talk through the project that they have in mind before they start to do all that effort of collecting data, right? That painful work of getting the project set up. Uh, so I think, I think sort of looking at it from a, uh, you know, a, a multidimensional uh, domain experts, right? Perspective first, and really thinking about the downstream. Okay, so if you can build this, what would you do with it? Who would be benefited? What, what would be the risks of that? Um, but in terms of your comment about, you know, can we just use simple? Does everything have to be deep learning? Of course, right? So like, you know, we, we always try simple off the shelf things. And, and especially when we work with EHR data, which is obviously that uh, relatively high dimensional, but low end, you don't need, you know, you don't need some of these like, you know, 21, eight, you know, 80 layer, you know, machine learning <laughs> models. You can actually just get away with some simple, uh, you know, regression and even other uh, approaches and, and and achieve the same thing. And in that case, then it's much more explainable, right? I mean, we know that. And that's really the trade-off is the deeper you go, the more complex you get, the less explainable things become. Um, and, and maybe your use case doesn't require that explainability, but, you know, trust is the currency of healthcare, right? You must trust your provider. You must trust, uh, you know, your healthcare system. And so to have some aspect of that care that's not explainable and making decisions for your body, your health, it's a, it's a bit of a, a, a difficult sort of conversation. So we really do uh, sort of try to focus on number one, utility. Can we get away with some simple models to, to sort of help make decisions around the use case? Uh, but then, you know, again, if we are going into the deep learning space, and again, that's, that's really where you're saying, okay, you, you can't really use regression for pixel-based analysis, at least to the level that we would need, right? So you do you know, encounter a lot of medical imaging where you do end up jumping into deep learning and it does work quite well for certain, for certain cases. But how do you then say, is this going to actually uh, really help us? Could this cause more problems than it solves? Those are the things that end up coming up later. Hmm. Yeah, you actually mentioned two of the key terms that, I, that my next question was on was something trust and uh, explainability. So uh, I know this would be the answer to the question, but I still want to ask this question is, uh, from a medical standpoint, if you were to complain about machine learning uh, community that if that if just I had this particular XYZ thing, uh, the application of machine learning on medical data sets could be much more smooth and better. What would be that thing that you could complain about that, hey, machine learning seriously sucks at this? And please, please fix this or please do uh, concrete research on something along those lines. What, according to you, would be two, uh, two or three points that you would add to that? Yeah, you know, I think that we had, we, we've talked about this a lot and, and sort of thinking about, um, you know, where do humans do their thing really well and where do, you know, machine learning models do their thing really well and can we find a middle ground uh, to help us triage what would be a good use case? I think, you know, humans are incredibly good at, transfer learning. So like that task of I've seen a, a fracture on an x-ray and then I maybe have never seen a fracture on a CT scan, a totally different modality, but I would only need to see one example and say, oh, okay, that's also a fracture, right? That's not too hard. Um, but that's not always the case with, as you know, with machine learning, you need to 
acquire thousands of examples sometimes, right? Annotate in a certain way and then kind of do the same kind of thing. So that that ability to sort of conceptualize knowledge and and move it around and, and think about almost metaphorically, if I'm calling on some of my English major sort of background to say, <laughs> this is a creative endeavor. We're creative beings. That is a superpower that humans have. And I think it's underappreciated when we kind of boil things down to uh, networks and trainings and, and outputs. Another thing that I, I think is, is you know, to go on the machine learning side and say, what, what do they really get at? You know, this is something that um, I would put in the bucket of quantification. We're terrible at quantification. I, you know, measuring, uh, looking at the big picture and kind of summing things up, we can probably do well, but we can't really do that quantification and consistently uh, just, you know, as, as we could maybe with these machine learning models. So when I think about how, for example, a new drug would be approved for use. Uh, maybe it's based on an imaging outcome. So maybe a tumor is shrinking by a certain percentage over time on a drug. Well, that's based on human measurements over time. And there's error in there. Uh, there's error that could go one way or the other and, and in aggregate could potentially cause, you know, the difference between an approval or not, right? Or someone being, a, you know, kicked off a trial or, or kept on. That's something that I would almost argue that we should try to standardize, try to automate, and, and where machine learning would potentially have an advantage in that case. You know, for me though, I, you know, when I look at any of these given problems, trust and explainability are incredibly important initially. Um, in other words, you know, we want to know that the model's safe, effective, where it works, where it doesn't, and we want to be able to open it up and kind of look at it. But I, I sort of push back on the narrative that you need to have explainability for every use case. In other words, if I know that it's worked. I've built out a paradigm in which I can safely deploy this and I can test it. I don't need to, on every single case it examines, be able to explain that, right? So I think that that's, there's interpretability and there's explainability. I think for me, it's, it's you know, understanding that I have done the, the due diligence for the model in, in particular, and, you know, for a moment, I'll ignore kind of technical drift and distribution shifts and all those things and just say, if we have this theoretical model that works and is safe, and I can explain why, you know, where the guardrails are, I would feel comfortable deploying that without having to go those extra steps saying, well, every case that it's looked at, I need to know why it made that decision. So that's, that's one difference. But, you know, broad, in, in speaking in broad strokes, you know, again, there are things that humans are great at, there's things that models are great at. Um, and one thing we have to be careful is, is as we bring the human strengths to the table and the model strengths to, at the same time, there's another interaction that happens there. And I think sometimes that has been ignored as well, which is around automation bias and some of the interface. So we find that we can have the exact same model, but we can present it in different ways to a human. And it will actually change the human's performance, even if we don't change the model. That's a critical insight because we are just subject to just biases as humans. And automation bias is incredibly well documented and very seductive, right? We could sort of say, well, it's a computer. It must be right. I'm just going to sort of ignore my own judgment. We always use the GPS analogy where, you know, uh, if your GPS is just telling you to turn right, we just turn right. We don't really <laughs> give it another thought. And so this is where we bring in some of the ideas about probability and say, can we provide the information that would also give an indication of the model's confidence? And then, then we can make a better judgment as humans when we're interacting with these models and say, well, now if your GPS said turn right here, I'm 50% sure. 
you're going to say, hold on a second. If you're only 50% sure, I'm going to look at my map or I'm going to, I'm going to look around <laughs> me and say, you know, where am I? Right. And, and so, so these are, these are new areas, right? We haven't had so much interaction with machines as we do uh, now. And, and we're learning about how these behavioral components play into our performance on, on the ground. Wow, I, I really like the GPS analogy because this is uh, this is really useful. But um, again, I always wanted to probe someone for, as a medical professional on this particular thing. Is you mentioned explainability, so which is something that you want to understand on a subject basis. If a if a patient is particularly diagnosed for either healthy or non-healthy um, classes, you would just like to know why that particular patient suffered or not. But if we like i have read a lot of uh, literature on the interpretability and one thing that all of the papers say it's very subject to the matter like it depends who's interacting with the model is it a professional is it patient so it's it's a very uh, open topic subjective topic but if i were to just ask you because you are a per person an expert in medical imaging let's say i just have your uh, medical imaging data of patients that is the only data that i have i don't have the demographics and all those things this is a hypothetical scenario please pick, don't pick on me if if that's not the case for uh, uh, but if i'm just dealing with neuroimaging data and uh, uh, so the ideally of if I if I were to ask you why did you classify that particular patient as a non-healthy one, you would just po you would just point out to me in the image, but you will also give a lot of background information based on your textbook knowledge that you have learned. But from a deep learning model, just based on neuroimaging data, how would you expect? I have seen f for some works where they have attention maps, and I guess mm -hmm. I guess it, it was uh, maybe you were a part of that research was the chest. Uh, chest net or uh, chest x net or something I, I don't know if that uh, if i'm spelling that uh, research correctly or not but i have seen some of the work where they have attention maps but a lot of people have criticized that that is not the only thing that calls for explainability so just to rephrase the question just for medical imaging and neuroimaging data how would you visualize or at least demand a machine learning community to have look at explainability and how would it look like to you yeah, no, that's a great question. And, and you know, it, 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 as you mentioned in the beginning, it does depend on the particular use case. So, you know, if this is a decision as to whether I should be treated for a certain disease or not, uh, you're going to want more information, right, about <laughs> how that decision was made. And we have to be careful to think about, I think, in the computer science sort of mindset, we're thinking, okay, this is a static, doable problem. This is a single image you know, this, this is what it is. And the pre previous data will always inform future data. And that is a huge misconception for what healthcare actually is. And I, I love this uh, analogy that, that we're able to have now. I mean, again, we're sitting in the middle of a horrible pandemic that has, that has basically been a microcosm of the pitfalls of leveraging prior data to make future decisions. In other words, if I had built a prediction model on outcomes of COVID in March or April, and I try to deploy that now in January of 2021, it's going to say a lot of it's going to say a lot of wrong things, right? It's going to make a lot of bad decisions because treatment has changed, the, the demographics of people have changed. There's a vaccine, there's new therapeutics. The the you know our understanding of how to treat these patients has changed. Well, that's a that's a very compressed, dense example of all of healthcare, right? We 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 change. Uh, therapies often in many different diseases, right? We have do lots of different approaches. So for me, um, where I think we're starting to awaken to the concept of the single pixel image, as we're just trying to look at the imaging task, that's not 
that's not all the information there is to know. And if you rely on that as being that is the only problem, the only data source, I feel like we are going to ultimately uh, do a disservice, particularly for diagnostic tasks, probably more so for prediction tasks. But if, if I'm looking at just pixel data, I'm, I'm, I'm totally ignoring tons of other useful information, right? And so that's where we've really tried to push hard, especially in the last couple of years on multimodal data fusion, where we're now, okay, well, I'm going to show you the pixel, uh, but I'm also going to give you contextual data. I may also give you prior imaging data. Uh, and, and, and I'll be able to sort of fill in some of the gaps that allow you to properly place that patient or that situation in a, if we're trying to imagine, a, let's say an embedding space, a multidimensional feature space, you know, that change over time is actually more, uh, it's, it's easier to, de to define and, and to avoid some of the pitfalls. So, you know, again, maybe you're saying this is this little opacity on x-ray, that's got to be pneumonia. Well, is it pneumonia though? Because now I have this other data that might suggest that they have no clinical signs of infection. Maybe it's Maybe it's a tumor, or maybe it's uh, edema, or maybe it's you know something else. And so, uh, you know that that to me is really going to be our our way forward. And this isn't rocket science to a medical clinician. You know, you, you look at a uh, you ask someone how to explain what they how they made a diagnosis, and just like you said, they're going to give you a whole lot of context. Um, we can't we can't expect a model to to do the same thing if all it's given is pixel data. Uh, that's an unfair that's an unfair comparison. So. If you're planning to use these systems in some future state, 10 years, 20 years from now, as an automated, you know, completely automated system, then it needs to be able to understand contextual data. And uh, to my point about sort of the changing of time, also be able to continually update, right? I often use this example for our students, but, you know, Netflix updates thousands of times a day, their model for deciding which movie you might like. Now, that's not a very important problem in my life, although I do like being able to know which movie to like. Imagine now that you're telling me for my healthcare, uh, this model was trained five years ago and I'm still using it. That's ridiculous, right? So how is it continually learning from new data and new information? That's a challenge that our healthcare system is, is actually grappling with right now, how to understand uh, the use of these models and, again, take advantage of one of their biggest strengths, which is the ability to continually update and learn, right? And and why can't we borrow some of the learnings from other industries and say, you know, we can update this model and really fine tune it for, for the task at hand and the data that we have. Yeah, what you said totally makes sense because even uh, when I see um, the latest papers and uh, trying to classify a predict, uh, particular disease, I see a lot of multimodal deep learning models, which, uh, which are not really effective or maybe better than the previous models, but they are trying to make an effort to do that. So yeah, that definitely, that definitely makes sense. But uh, trying to take a step back from interpretability, because I guess uh, that that's a much more of a sub uh, subjective topic, is um, talking about the generalizability of models. Um, I have seen, because I work at least on three projects, which are three different disorders, uh, at least two different disorders, I would say. Uh, for now, it's the Alzheimer's and the post-traumatic headaches. Mm -hmm. And one thing that I, uh, when I read papers and try to see what other people have done is... Mm, different institutions have different kind of data, different kind of models, and one model wouldn't definitely work on the other. And they have very highly uh, explicit data, which is uh, completely uh, known to the own, their own institutions. 
So me, like me or a person like me as a young researcher, it really handicaps me to understand what exactly should I do versus I don't know what the data looked like. But versus if I see on open computer vision problems, uh, the data set is much more public. So like a cat image, I can just download it from the online and I can actually see working it on my laptop and hence I learn those things. So do you like like you have a much more uh, wide exposure to medical imaging and machine learning? Do you see the same problem? Uh, like, do you face a similar challenge? I would say in in your research, or and if if you do, do you think this problem can be solved? Because I know there are a lot of concerns and privacy issues, and that generates the whole uh, problem in the first place. Or do you think uh, researchers should have to have uh, have to find a way around these things because it really, really limits the, the data sets in the first place is very small and secondly they are very explicit so uh, can you can you comment more on that yeah no i mean i i was thinking as you as you talked you know whenever i hear someone's working on uh things like alzheimer's or post-traumatic headaches that's tough right that's tough for for help for, for healthcare in general like you can't i don't know if you can get you know, people in a room and, and have them agree and be consistent on those kinds of diagnoses. And if you're trying to use, you know, ICD code data, which is already known to be 30% ish wrong already, uh, billing data, right, then, and then the fact that it's not really time stamped in a way that's useful for your clinical problem. And then adding in that those two diagnoses are very much clinical, and in sort of very subjective, right? Um, you're really adding a lot of layers of, of difficulty for a machine learning problem because, again, you need a ground truth. Like, I don't need to biopsy a cat. I can know it's a cat, you know, <laughs> it's, it's what it is. Um, but for Alzheimer's, I mean, what if they come out in two months with another biomarker or another consensus that says there's a new scoring system that you have to use? Are you going to have to go back and retrain all of your data? These are tough problems to tackle. They're not, it's not that they're not worth tackling, it's just that they're very difficult. And so to do that, I think you need to really understand what the task is that you're trying to accomplish. Are you trying to predict a future diagnosis of cognitive disease or whatever? Can you get enough information to say no matter where the, the future you know, moves towards, I can actually give a probability this person should undergo additional testing or something. You know, so you have to reframe it. Uh, and you'll notice that in a lot of the work that I've done, I've tried to stick to use cases that the, the imaging modality tends to be where the answer is. In other words, I, I don't spend a lot of time, for example, an, another example might be uh, prostate cancer, for example. You know, uh, it, it's an important problem, certainly, and there's a lot of different ways to tackle this. But, you know, again, you have to do a biopsy, and the biopsy can be subjective, and there could be disagreement between the pathologists. So now you have a layer of disagreement on the imaging, a layer of disagreement on the, on the biopsy itself and, and the read of that. So not that it's not worth tackling, but you know, when I look at the low-hanging fruit, I'm looking at something like pulmonary embolism, right? Where you do a CT scan, that's it. You don't need to biopsy. It's, it, there's either a clot there or there's not, uh, right? Or there's a pneumothorax or there's not. You know, these kinds of things for me set me up for success. In other words, I don't need to rely on you know, incomplete billing data or you know, a sort of a consensus of experts to really help me define my supervised learning problem. Um, on the other hand, you know, you can take a disease that is still difficult to define. There have been, you know, use cases where we've used unsupervised learning, as I'm sure you've seen, to take a well-curated data set and try to draw, you know, insights into outcomes and then use that to sort of make better decisions about how to come up with a diagnosis. And that's part of the discussion. And I think that that's a valuable approach too. But as you mentioned, if your data set's small, 
uh, that's also kind of a difficult task. You're going to be so overfit to your own small population. So, uh, you know, again, when we go take a step back and say, is this really about generalizability? Well, sort of. I mean, if you're if your model works well on your own data uh, for, with your experts, but doesn't work, uh, you know, at another institution with their experts, is that a labeling problem or is that a machine learning problem? That's you know, I would almost argue that that you're kind of encountering the noise of the labeling task or the diagnosis task more than you are a problem with the machine learning task. And so, but but on the other hand, if it truly is that you've overfit and you need to be able to generalize, maybe it's across different types of scanners, different kinds of biomarkers, whatever else you're looking at. Well, you know, then then you do need to collect multi-institutional, multi-center, large population data sets that that you know, again, we've we've had this conversation before where maybe I'm really sure about my label uh, and I'm really sure about my performance, but it still isn't generalizing. Well, that's because they use a different scanner or their population is, you know, uh, completely skewed in terms of a, of a different ethnicity or a different gender. Uh, and, and that actually is shown to be a problem, right? So, you know, and, that, and that's why when we focus on these large data challenges, if you look at the RSNA challenges that, you know, we've helped try to put these together, uh, we come up with problems like brain hemorrhage. You don't biopsy a brain hemorrhage. You know that that's hemorrhage on a CT scan. But even if you do have a great label, uh, you don't want to have a problem where you're overfitting or you're or you're you know causing generalizability problems. So we collected data from four countries, you know, four institutions, and 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 really and now you can see that the the models that are created from that data set they actually generalize quite well because again a lot of those other difficult to control variables are, are taken into account uh, when the model's created. So again, you know, I, my hat's off to you because, you know, I know that th there's a lot of work in Alzheimer's and, and a lot of it's regarding, you know, some biomarkers that are thought to be useful. There's multimodal, uh, you know, data work actually that was mostly pioneered in Alzheimer's because of the challenges of looking at just the pixel data, right? I understand that. At the same time, if I can't get, you know, three or four experts in a room to agree I'm going to start to wonder, hey, hold on a second. Is this really the right time to start tackling this problem? It, just like with COVID, using that example again, if I can't get three experts to agree how to treat COVID or whether you know what, what it does in the body in March, I'm going to say, well, I don't want to do any prediction work yet <laughs> because uh, I know that things are probably going to change in three months, right? So um, I guess that, that makes me more of a, an opportunist looking at the low-hanging fruit. Uh, but this, these are discussions we have all the time because – you can pick almost anything in healthcare and, and try to tackle it, right? And, and the question is, is just because you can uh, doesn't mean you should. Yeah, um, yeah, that is one thing I even I learned because I started maybe back uh, in summer 2020 when, when I started my PhD study over here. And initially, because I am a computer science student, so for me, uh, if I'm given a task, my first step is to just code it out and get the results and just develop <laughs> right. a model. So... Um, I was given this very uh, nice data set that was highly registered and I worked on it and I saw the results, but uh, the results weren't good. And I said, I got the best model. Why isn't it replicating its results? And it, it took me a very long time. And when I say long time, it was maybe at least two months to understand what I'm actually trying to do because it was really hard for me to get the communication with the experts because I was working with few of the big name experts at Mayo Clinic. So it's it's very silly to ask questions like, oh, how do you classify this particular patient to be an Alzheimer's versus a healthy? So I was just too scared. So yes, I totally agree. When, and, and the complexity added when I... Um, 
read few papers, few articles, few blogs and verses whom the advisor I work with as a computer science faculty and everything just went in different directions. And I was like, if I don't know what I'm doing, how do I expect my machine learning model to get the accuracy values for you? So I totally agree. That's like, that is one thing I I always bow down to medical professionals. Like I, I didn't have a much more exposure to those things, but now I do, and I, I I see the challenge. Well, you should feel totally. Com- I mean, again, I always tell this to our students. I mean, if there's there's no such. I mean, I ask dumb questions all the time. You know, when, <laughs> especially to folks that like who who knows more about deep learning than Andrew Ang. I don't know if anybody really does. I'm totally willing to ask him a stupid question. I don't. I I really have let go of any sense of I don't care if you think I don't know something <laughs> because that's the truth. I don't know it, and I want to know it. And as long as I'm, so, you know, again, I, I encourage the students, uh, you know, especially for some of our difficult machine learning problems that are kind of specialized, right? Specialized clinical problems. I say, get in the clinic. I mean, obviously pre, pre-pandemic, we would have our <laughs> students shadowing, hanging out in the clinic with the physicians. And I said, you know, you know, limit yourself to 10 dumb questions a day, just so you don't annoy anybody. But, you know, but, but ask those questions and observe and write notes and think about what they're doing and, you know, come back and then maybe read some literature and then come back with questions. You know, we love that. I think everybody inherently loves to talk about the work that they're passionate about. And, you know, again, you should never feel intimidated to ask questions about because you're, you're, you have a genuine interest in helping solve healthcare problems that would benefit patients, right? So, you know, we all have a best interest in mind, um, but it does require us to let down our guard and, you know, uh, for me, you know, I, as a quote expert, I, you know, I don't consider myself in that light. I still am willing to come to this and say, I'm a beginner. Teach me what you know. And so I don't make assumptions before walking into the conversation that would pre- prevent me from seeing the true insight. Again, I'm, I haven't mastered that. Um, but I, the more gray hair I get, the more I realize that the beginner's mind is the, actually the one that, that wins the day. Yeah, yeah, totally. I'll, I'll definitely take that suggestion. That that actually sounds really nice. Like going to the clinic and actually seeing how this is done in practice really helps. Like at least for a motivation for a new architecture in deep learning, you never know. So I'll definitely take that suggestion. And uh, talking about like asking dumb questions, uh, <laughs> what do you think are some of the most underestimated versus overestimated applications of deep learning in medical imaging? I know a lot of. Uh, news media articles just for the clickbaits they would have these very big name uh titles they would say like oh like it's taking over the jobs of radiologists are going down those are some of the overestimated claims versus like what are some of the underestimated claims that you think that people should be focusing more efforts because it's a great potential for getting it out there what what uh, what would you like to comment on that yeah, you know, I, I I think that it's it's sad to see that I feel like a completely underutilized resource is um, is using NLP and and text based analysis to try to acquire large labeled data sets. I think that you know we part of that actually, to be honest with you, is the difficulty in sharing free text. It's very difficult to de-identify that to the degree that we can pixel data. So there isn't as much in the community. Like, so for example, my hat's off to Mimic and the MIT folks who, you know, they not only did they release chest x-rays with the labeling schema that we had for Chexpert, uh, so now there's a half million, a little more, little more than a half million chest x-rays out there, which is great, uh, also with those same 14 labels. But, but then they were able to later release the text reports that went along with those chest x-rays. And, and, and I think that that's, that's such an underutilized resource 
again, partially because it's not very freely available. But, you know, again, relying on substandard NLP to then build projects and, and, and perform experiments with the assumption that these labels are just as good as ImageNet labels, that's a huge misconception that I, I hope that we can continue to, to sort of make clear. Now, uh, we've shown that even really noisy labels like the, NI, the initial NIH data set with chest x-rays, which had up to 30% noise in some of the labels, you know, that still can develop models that work, right? It's tolerance of noise. We know that if you have a very clean test set. The problem is, is that a lot of folks don't have very clean test sets. They're just holding out a noisy labeled test set from the noisy training data. And that's that's not going to get the job done. You're not going to have something that you're, you're going to understand the true performance, right? So, you know, again, focusing on ways to scale, but but really, you know, again, transformers have really made this almost a, a, a foregone conclusion that we can do a lot of this work now. I think that that architecture, that schema, and some of the newer you know, uh, approaches that are coming out, we're not far away from being really good at text and pixel data together. But again, I think extracting the labels in a way that, you know, doesn't require uh, a poor radiologist to go through hundreds of thousands of examples or force the computer scientists to, 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 to deal with the really noisy labels. I think that um, that's an underappreciated part of, of, of the work. And again, we all want to do the cool sexy, you know, pixel-based analyses. Um, but, you know, uh, a lot of that work is, as we kind of started out with, is, is, is actually creating the data sets, making them accurate and then having the right labels. And, um, you know, to, I guess, you know, to your point of just saying, what's the hype in all of this, you know, in a, in a controlled place, just like with your work, you know, you can, you can take a given data set that's really clean and outperform a human or at least perform as, I mean, that's, that's, a, that's a legitimate statement. But the problem is the real world is not clean um, and it's not and healthcare is incredibly messy. And so when you try to do a real world deployment of that, then you start to encounter all of the problems that, you know, our current research is trying to solve multimodal input, comparing across priors with the Siamese neural networks, looking at the difference in embedding space between two imaging examinations and then bringing in clinical context, large data sets, right? Those kinds of things are meant to solve all of the drawbacks that occur when you go from hype saying, oh, well, look at what we did to why isn't this now working in my clinic? There's that, that translation gap aside from all the infrastructure and all the technical challenges is also just, you know, the lab environment, just like with drug development, just like with, you know, how many times have we heard a cancer cure is on the, on the horizon. We've cured, <laughs> we've cured mouse cancer like 500 times, you know, <laughs> but we haven't cured human cancer. Right. So like there, there's a reason for that, right? The controlled experiment is not the real world. And so we have to recognize that this lag is not failure. This lag is just continued learning as to what works and what doesn't. And that's how we've approached it. Yeah, definitely. I guess uh, it's it's a step by step process. So like these little steps actually count towards a bigger uh, achievement. Uh, but um, talking like uh, I I I uh, this was one of my favorite questions when I listed out all the questions was um, in your experience of using AI for uh, medical purposes, has there been any or regardless of uh, even if it's not your own work, have you come across uh, any work that you 
that was something like before uh, before application of ai it it used to have some challenges but after using ai tools uh, it produced substantially really good results or at least insightful results have you come across any kind of those challenges and um, just to give a back, uh, nice uh, preface to that is i always like this uh, one uh, short story by rich karwana he's a microsoft re- researcher at microsoft research and he shared in one of the conferences where he said like he back this was back few years back where he used the neural network model when it wasn't so cool but uh, a part of his phd thesis he worked and he worked on pneumonia data and he was trying to build a classifier for patients and the conclusion of that particular neural network was uh, patients who had uh, asthma are safe of pneumonia mm-hmm. and when he when he went to the medical professionals they said like never say those things out they are completely false from a medical standpoint but the results were on mark and um, i don't know if you have heard this uh, article or not uh, yeah we we used that example in our course actually because oh. <laughs> what 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 happened i don't know if you know the story behind that but what they actually did was they used data from a healthcare system that had a very specific protocol and the protocol said that if someone had pneumonia and they had asthma they needed to be admitted and treated aggressively whereas if you didn't have that then you then you weren't given that aggressive treatment and so patients with asthma that ended up having pneumonia and diagnosed in that system got aggressive treatment and actually did better because they got aggressive treatment than, than the regular folks that didn't have asthma history. So when you look at the data, you're like, well, geez, asthma is a protective uh, <laughs> factor, right? That's not medically, that doesn't make, that makes no sense. So you have to look at how the data was created. And, that, and there's a lot of pitfalls like that with EHR data. And these are examples we use in our course to really try to explain, you know, you can have a result but if you can't ask the right questions about how that data was trained, what what it was, you know, how it was used and how it was curated, I guess, um, you're going to you could potentially cause a lot of problems. Again, we like to say you can have one bad clinician who can impact the healthcare of, you know, a few thousand patients. Again, not that that's small, but compare that to a bad model that can be, you know, scaled across an entire healthcare system and impact hundreds of thousands of millions of patients. That to me is the reason why we have to be so incredibly careful uh, with our machine learning use cases, because again, the possibility of scale. Yeah, yeah, definitely. But like, um, yeah, I, I, that's a very different view to look at it. But me as a student or maybe a naive researcher, what I looked at the story, it looked like uh, the neural network model gave some very nice insights, like at least the the part that you said, like people who had asthma would be going through severe healthcare um, treatments, and hence they wouldn't contract pneumonia or something like that. To me as a ECS researcher, it, it felt like it, it was an insightful thing that anyone would have been benefited to know. In your experience have you come across like at least any kind of pure such cases where you where you saw ai giving some insights that wasn't like it wasn't something new knowledge but at least like pattern finding that was very insightful to a medical professional you know absolutely um i'll tell you that you know i think in the domain of so one of the domains i think that is the least well understood and explored and is subject to the limitations of human ability is pathology right so you know, a medical image, I can look at a chest x-ray in, you know, 20 seconds and really kind of, you know, do the, I can look at all the information on that, but a, a, a slide is hundreds of times larger. So a slide of a biopsy, for example. And so any given biopsy, you know, there's several levels of magnification, but there's this, there's this huge amount of information. This is a true needle in a haystack problem that humans, it requires an incredible amount of concentration and work to, to, to really make these diagnoses. 
And when you look at some of the machine learning work that's come out of the pathology space, some of the insights that these models were picking up were not related to some of the things that uh, pathologists were typically thinking about were, were you know, uh, you know, indications of, of severe disease. In other words, as opposed to looking at the cell itself, it was looking at the spaces between the cells or the interaction between them or on a macro scale. Again, as we talked about before, the big picture, how it's, it's actually able to, to do things that really provided new insights into how we stage or understand it. So this is true irregardless. So, you know, again, if, if, it, if you've worked out that it's not a biased or spurious result or, a, you know, a, a spurious uh, a, a causation, and it's actually something that's a true insight, you know, that stuff is really great. And, and, and again, I think that that, you know, pathology, but certainly all across the different fields, you know, you're looking at, you know, ophthalmology data sets that are predicting, uh, you know, uh, heart disease risk and things that we aren't already doing. Those are insights, I think, that are incredibly useful. And, and we can act, we can act on them, right? We know how to do preventative heart disease, or we know how to at least put those patients in the screening and, and, and best practices for preventative care. Uh, that to me is, is, is really where some of these insights are actually great. And if you happen to do a project that you come across something and you can validate it, that's a ton of fun, right? Because now you're not only creating new medical knowledge, but you're also able to do something that could impact again, sort of at a scaled approach, a lot of patients. Hmm. Yeah, definitely. That's interesting. And, um, uh, being a co-director, uh, I wondered why I, I, I know this, I mentioned before the meeting is, um, uh, how being a co-director who deals with experts, uh, from CS and medical, uh, medical imaging, how do you tend to, uh, be a bridge for between two, the experts, uh, to communicate their work versus what are, what are the things they can achieve versus what are the expectations? How do you try to merge? Because I, I kind of find those things challenging. I don't understand what, um, medical experts really want out of it and versus what CS people can do. How do you try to merge or are, are there any efforts that you put in from your end to make that communication smooth? Uh, you're talking about communication with, uh, are you talking about like just generally or, or how we communicate findings? Yeah, in general, like uh, if there is some medical uh, medical problem that you're working on, the initiation is like I need to understand what is the end goal of what, what does that data mean versus how do I like for example if I do image registration that just uh, del like deletes or at least max black spiced data that is very important from a medical standpoint. I should be knowing what you what is the concern and what is the important thing to you, right? all those kind of things and versus like you like versus what machine learning can do like there are certain uh, limitations to the algorithms itself like how yeah, do you try to well, that's merge? that's a great that's a great question I, you know we um you know we spend a lot of time thinking about how we can communicate the guide the guidelines right where it works where it doesn't work how it was trained what subpopulations so we have overall performance and you can talk about you know subclass performance right um, and then that we hope it's sort of that data sheets for data sets idea um, that that's kind of catching on, I think, more broadly. Um, but just to say we need to know a lot about what how the model was trained and all the information. And then we don't just need to know one ROC curve. We need to know under several conditions how it performs. And then for us, you know, what we try to do is we actually try to show uh, a real world deployment of what that might look like as well. Uh, and then, you know, where we're finding that it's it underperforms, right? Um, and, and, and that is critical communication uh, that, you know, again, we spend a lot of time on, you know, for clinical trials, for FDA validation, for, you know, IRB ethics approvals for, tr for trials or projects. You know, these are, these are uh, sort of givens, right? We need to know that information. And, 
you know, we take a lot from the drug industry about, you know, how they've done this over time as well, because, you know, a lot of drugs are kind of black boxes as well, right? And so we didn't know where they work and where they don't. And as we're seeing with the vaccines, we're learning a lot about this in real time and in, 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 out in the open, but this is, a, this is a standard practice in healthcare. Right. And yeah, I know we are running out of time. I'll, I'd like to thank you for being over here. Uh, it's, it, it, it was really insightful and it, it was glad to have you. Thank you for being here. Yeah, thanks, Jay. It was great to, great to chat with you and uh, you're doing great work out there. And again, uh, I'm always happy to see another ASU alum and uh, <laughs> uh, maybe hope to see you in person someday out there when I visit again. I love, I love that area, I love that campus. And, and like I said, uh, congrats on all the great work. Yeah, thank you. Thank you very much. I'll, I'll love to meet you too. All right, we'll take care. Thanks again. Bye-bye. Bye.